What's up, y'all? This is Baraka Blue, and I'm excited for you guys to peep this conversation I had with Brother Ali. Brother Ali, as most people know, is an amazing artist, uh, one of the foremost uh, hip-hop artists, carrying that golden era flavor forward into the new millennium, but he's also uh, an activist and really lives through his music um, what he believes and his own experiences and a lot of his music is very profoundly autobiographical he really talks about his journey a lot and what's important to him he's one of those people whose music and whose life is, is uh, interwoven you're not getting a different version when you hear the music you're getting Brother Ali as he is I wanted to give some context to the conversation because uh, I didn't want to just drop everybody into the abyss because <laughs> it was like a two hour conversation and there was a lot that was covered and it happened to be in the middle of the night in Oakland, California. And so there was some background information that will probably help process it. But basically we talked about, we started off talking about hip hop and authenticity versus popularity and you know what it means to be true to your art form and then we got into art as 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 vibration and is really a powerful tool and then that opened into a conversation about tradition and modernity and we were kind of discussing about non-european ways of being and knowing uh which are confronted with the powerful reality of the monoculture as it kind of the dominating Western European scientism. Um, and the context for that is that him and I just went to a retreat in Spain uh, called the Zawiya with Dr. Omar Farokabella and many others. The retreat really focused on the idea of art and beauty and spirituality. So art as the splendor of truth, truth meaning the deeper spiritual truth, al-haq, the ultimate reality, and really dealt with the conceptions of what does beauty mean in kind of traditional, uh, mystical, philosophical, spiritual doctrines. Probably my favorite part of the podcast was when we started talking about the history of Islam in America. And for those who know Brother Ali, they know that he comes out of the community of Imam W.D. Muhammad, who was the son of Elijah Muhammad, and who, the trajectory is just amazing. It's one of the most fascinating things in uh, in the world, in the, you know, the 20th century. It's the largest mass conversion to kind of traditional Orthodox Sunni Islam as he takes over the nation of Islam and brings the community of millions of African-Americans into Al-Islam, a traditional Islam. And then he talks about, uh, we talk about Farrakhan and Elijah Muhammad and W.D. Muhammad and Malcolm and the martyrdom, the assassination of Malcolm 
and Farrakhan's the, the things he said about that early on and how to situate that. And Ali, you know, really breaks down the history well and has some really deep perspectives and is someone who's clearly thought a lot about it. So I benefited greatly from hearing that. All in all, it was really a dope conversation that happened in the middle of the night. So excuse if if we were sounding like we were a little bit uh, half asleep. But I think the beauty of this this podcast is that it was raw, like there was no filter. It was just a sincere conversation between brothers, and I hope that there's some benefit in it. All right, y'all, without further ado, one love. Yeah, man. It's interesting that so much of hip hop that is successful, like more than any other art form, it's super autobiographical. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's people telling their story and then people being moved by their story. Like, you don't necessarily see that in, like, R&B. I guess country is a lot of stories. But, but it's yeah, more like, not a, yeah. it's not like, it's, this is my life story. Right. It's like, this is my truck, and this is my... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, Hank Williams got some joints, man. Hank Williams the third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got some joints. But the, um... Yeah, and hip-hop, like, it's all authenticity more than any other type of music. Mm-hmm. So, like, the whole, like, oh, my God, Drake has a ghostwriter. Like, right. Drake is, like, the biggest pop music dude in rap right this moment. And he might have he might end up being one of the biggest, mm-hmm. like, pop music artists, like, pop rappers that there's ever sure. been. Sure. But still, there's an outcry if he's not, if it's not completely right. authentically him. When every, like pop singer has like 13 writers on every song and no one cares right because it's like that's what it is yeah when you make it yeah i wasn't yeah when someone it's like i can't really understand people that were outraged if if drake had a ghostwriter because it's like is he like the you know what i mean like when people were saying nas had a ghostwriter on that untitled album dude it broke my heart yeah they were saying stick man or something somebody one of the dead press brothers wrote some of the stuff and I was like, nah, nah, because he's like, you know, lyricism. I mean... But it's like Drake, it's like, who cares, dude? No, I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I think that Drake... The thing about Drake is that he's got a pop sensibility. He's one of the first guys to have a... And really, I mean... And that's another that's another mold that Jay-Z broke. Mm-hmm. Um, and it started with... with Biggie and Tupac like mm-hmm. Biggie and Tupac were the so like prior to Biggie and Tupac the biggest like most pop rappers were people that like the hip hop community didn't select mm-hmm. so like they might have they, a lot of them were part of the community like nobody's saying Hammer wasn't part right. of the you know what I'm saying like Hammer really was part of it you know Tone Loke was it's not like Tone Loke was not from the hip hop community mm-hmm. or like Young MC or like you know um groups like that but they were never the ones that the hip-hop community was like those are the greatest so like Tupac and, and Biggie were the the first guys that ever were the most popular commercially successful and also were you know mm-hmm. the like the best rappers at that mm-hmm. time like Pac being the most passionate storyteller mm-hmm. Biggie being the most like intricate mm-hmm. whatever um, 
But Jay-Z kind of like didn't have the pop sensitivity of either one of those dudes. Mm. Like his charisma is not as like overt as those guys. Like Jay-Z really did it by spitting rhymes. Mm. Like there's no musicality to what he's doing. Mm. Um, there's no... But his mic, on the mic charisma is amazing. Actually, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's not like, like he literally or like him as a person. Like no, 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 no. But that's the other thing about Drake that's interesting, not to cut you out, Mm-mm. but it's like... Drake as a person, like it's like, come on, dude, like you know what I mean. Like if you see him, but Drake on the mic, like he's like he'll say some ignorant stuff, and you'll be like bobbing your head. Where if I would have heard another dude say that, I'd be like, I can't listen to this. You know what I mean? Like something about him, he has. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he he's, he's, he's so nice. You know what I mean? You know, and yeah, it's funny. But I, so I'm saying like, so but but Drake, I would say Drake is like complete pop like everybody mm-hmm. I think everybody knows that like Drake is a pop dude mm-hmm. but his ability to rhyme his his actual bars yeah. for a pop dude he's the he's the greatest like you know and he's actually singing on his right, you know? right. so you like yeah sing. he's everybody's doing what they're doing like if you're mad at Drake for being like the freaking you know like for not being freaking dead press mm-hmm. you mixing up who he is you know what I mean Everybody's kind of just plays a role right and exact, you know. I mean, I, I'd still really appreciate that about hip hop, you know. And not that it's like not on some like purist like, you know, hip hop. You got to be a hundred percent real because that's mm-hmm. obviously not the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that there is still that is still the expectation, and if you don't do right. that, then you've got some explaining to do. You know what I mean? For or sure. there's a, that's that's the the. You know, if your life story that you've been telling us isn't real, sure. like when Rick Ross got busted, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. you know what I mean. And then similarly with, like, if you're not actually with the pen and the pad mm-hmm. writing these bars, mm-hmm. then it that's still a scandal because there will be a time when that's not the case. There will be just like every other scandal, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Where like you know, for Nixon, when Nixon got, they found out that like maybe all this money in the camp, political campaigns of a president isn't clean. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That was like a big deal. And now like the Supreme Court made it like, yeah, well let's just stop asking where the money's coming from. Corporations give as much as you want. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There will be a time in hip hop when nobody will be asking that question. So I appreciate the fact that you still have to answer for that. Both Ross and Drake. Mm-hmm. The ultimate lesson is the product is good or the product is is and I hate using this word like this is like a word that like you know radio people and basically people have started to use like the word is effect like effective mm-hmm. this music is effective and the person that's that started using it and really broke my heart was quest love because mm-hmm. like quest love used to be the guy that's like this is whack this is not good and I don't care mm-hmm. I'm not mad at these people but I'm gonna say that like I don't like this music I mean it's like straight up you know interviews with him where he's like I stopped worrying about whether or not music was dope and started thinking about is it effective Hmm. And like to me, that's a problem. But and and I mean that gets back to the thing about with those two dudes is that they still make music that works. Like that music is still of benefit to somebody. Right. And so the product is still what it is. You know what I mean? So even after people find out that this is that the it's not authentic, where people are like, okay, but it still works. Right. There's disconnect. Right. There's more disconnect people can have. And that's and that disconnect is becoming the thing that defines our society and and it, like we're at a point now where 
um, in this culture and in this society, we think that that's what the essential essence of a human being is. We think that's what humanity is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being we think the contradictions are the humanity. Mm-hmm. Like that's how we define humanity now, to the point where like if you know all of the drama, all of the like really big you know if you look at the um, the Sopranos. If you look at uh, like Breaking Bad, you know what I mean. Like all of these like dramas that are that are, you know, like ongoing. I mean, there's people that literally like live their lives with Breaking Bad. You know what I mean? And it's it's part of their life, like for years of their life, that this show is determining how they relate to life. This is like the main drama that's you know completely uh, um, consuming them. And no man, that's a that's a real point. It's like. If you look at traditional stories, you know, in all these traditional cultures, mm-hmm. the hero was clear and the villain right. was clear. Right. Like yep. it, but now it's yes. like all yeah, these yeah. people you're talking about, Tony Soprano, he's he's a he's anti-hero. Exactly. He's a criminal. He's a he's you know whacking people. He's offing people. But he's also you see his humanity. Right. He's you funny. love him, he's and he's right. a family man, and he's his relationship with his therapist or whatever. And so it it like muddies the waters right. in the sense of of that. Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean this whole thing, like you know, us just being in in Spain together for the you know and studying the uh, anti-traditional world, what some people call the modern world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this idea of, like, this idea of, like, the tension between heaven and earth, like, the tension between man and God being a necessary thing that, like, that's what drives the universe, mm-hmm. is the human beings being at war with God um, or the creator, you know, and... Um, like it really struck me when we were there, especially the people that we were there with, what an atheistic idea it is that like people just accept as a like basic truth this idea nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's not a that's not a spiritual idea. Like the spiritual idea is that the prophets are perfect, mm-hmm. and the the you know special sages Mm -hmm. or saints or whatever you want to call them that those are perfected human beings Mm -hmm. and it's amazing to actually be with to like be in a room with people like that that like this is a person who doesn't have negative thoughts that come through their brain first and then they fight them and do the right thing or sometimes don't do the right thing and that's what's endearing about them Mm -hmm. like the love that you can experience for a real and this is something that I didn't know about until like a year or two ago you know what I mean? And didn't really believe in it until just recently. And then once I started to believe that, like, maybe there really are people like that, then they just started showing up in my life and, like, reaching out to me, you know. But, like, to be with a person and realize that you, I had no idea what it was to love a person mm. until you realize that this is a person who has disciplined their low self. Or, like, discipline those, like, they discipline their anger. Like, you know, the the people that were around us, not that they don't have anger. Like, these are people who could, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, like, we know that a 70-year-old man that could easily kill a human being with Mm -hmm. their hands. Mm -hmm. No problem. Just probably with looking at them, though. You know what I mean? You can stop your heart just... Right. I mean, yeah. And, and, um, And there's no, you know, somebody ask them, like, you know, 
like just the things that this, like the, you know that these great people say like their anger is not gone their mm-hmm. their their um, you know desire to procreate isn't gone mm-hmm. their desire but they're disciplined like they're angry when it's time to be angry right. and they are you know conquering what needs to be conquered and they're fighting what needs to be right. fought but you know and and along with that and there's no tension between those things and their beauty and their love right. and their consciousness and their their you know it's it's a really amazing thing to witness and that's like if there's one thing that like I, that that I could do in life is like let the world know that this mm. is possible just that it's possible and i feel like ultimately when you when we boil islam down this is how I'm starting to see it. I've been Muslim for 20-something years, and I feel like I'm just now starting to get like mm. get a shadow of what this thing is really about. And like the idea that it can be right. Mm. Like the idea that, that the creator is perfect and that nothing that the creator does is problematic. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing problematic about the divine. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like that seems like it seems like such a simple thing and like the the complete like the like the society we live in cannot imagine that mm-hmm. you know what i mean and that a human being can actually be beautiful completely mm-hmm. that a person can be completely beautiful to where that's all they are is beauty people have been so hurt by like the individuals and like people and in, in institutions that are supposed to take care of them that they have no trust for anything anymore and when you talk about the idea that like that there that god is real and god is completely good you know what i'm saying and that there are good people on earth like that really is ultimately what islam is la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah god is real and good people are real. That's the whole of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, man, people are just so broken that, like, that that's what we need more than anything else in life. And that's also the one thing that we're just not able to bring ourselves to. To where if you just even acknowledge that God is real and good people are real, that's enough. Like, just acknowledging that. Yeah. According to the Islamic tradition, yeah, yeah. God's real, prophets are real. Yeah, and that's the path. And it's like, if you believe that, that should color every breath you take, every action you take. And I was thinking about that. It's like, yo, your 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 creation story is not inconsequential. Like you, you, what you believe about the cosmos is going to affect every interaction you have, every breath you take, every step you take, man. Because if you believe. You know, that there was a Big Bang and there was a nothing behind that, nothing before that. And then by absolute random chance, accident, um, you know, life formed on a planet and that planet and it developed over in deep time where there's mm. really just total random mutations, genetic material, and then eventually creates these beings, these monkeys with big brains <coughs> that are able by some fluke and by some almost like uh, sick joke <laughs> mm-hmm. are able to have a type of self-awareness where they're able to reflect on themselves 
and the cosmos itself. And they're able to come to some certain understanding about themselves in relation to time and space and this whole vast, infinite universe. And they're able to come to an understanding of that Big Bang. And here we are. And what is it? It doesn't mean anything. There's no... Like, that's going to inform your society. Mm -hmm. And what is it going to say? Well, I'm not sure. But it seems to me it would be deeply alienating. Like, yo, this is a freaking sick joke, dude. Right. Like, why am I here? It doesn't matter. There's no reason anyone's here. There's no reason any of this is here. It's all accidental. Whereas, if you believe in, (coughs) you know, the existence of an all-loving supreme power, that's going to inform everything. And even if you think about the fact that um, you know, subtleties in your creation story are going to affect things. So, you know, the fact that Eve was to blame for tricking Adam in the biblical story, this informs the entire 2,000-year history of Christianity and certain positions about oh when women are in childbirth you know don't ease their pain because this is her suffering for Eve you see what I'm saying like all this you know unfortunate terrible terrible stuff that happened over 2000 years whereas that small detail in the same general story in the Quran which is that no they ate the fruit together together yeah it totally alters that that whole thing. And also another even more you know, bigger picture thing is that in the Quranic narrative, Adam and Eve, there's no original sin. Right. It's forgetfulness. Right. It's heedlessness that they forgot ultimately the divine command. They forgot their true nature. They forgot the purpose. Whereas the original sin comes to color the entire history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, <coughs> this. And so if you believe that we're ultimately sinful creatures and we can't escape that inherent nature of sinfulness except for some other human being dying for our sins <coughs> versus if you believe we're actually all created as pure beings of truth and beauty, but with forgetfulness of that nature right. we're prone to fall into forgetfulness of that reality and the path is to awaken to that that's going to affect the entire society mm-hmm. not let alone the individuals within that society mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then even you know looking at things in that creation story um, the biblical idea that that Satan in the, in the uh, biblical story says God doesn't want you to know everything. Mm. Like if you eat from the tree, it's the tree of knowledge. Mm. You're going to know things. And God doesn't want you knowing stuff. So like you're under your your uh you know uh, service to God is based on your stupidity. Right. And Blind if you faith. Right. And if you <clears throat> knew, then you wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? God is worried that you're going to find out too much. You're going to see behind the curtain, and you're going to find out that it's like the Wizard of Oz. And then you're going to, you're not going to follow God because you're going to know things that are going to stop your service. Whereas in Islam, uh, Satan brings them greed, basically. 
Like, Satan doesn't bring him knowledge. He brings him greed. Like, you'll live forever. You know what I mean? You'll never be accountable to God. Basically, if you live forever, then there's no, there's no day of judgment for you. You know what I mean? You won't be accountable to God. You're just going to live forever. And so, you know, it creates like a vastly different approach to who is God? What does God want? What are the things that bring people away from God? You know, that whole idea of blind faith and then also that somehow learning about the world and like growing your intellectual capacity and your understanding of life and your understanding of the of the physical world is somehow at odds with your service to God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This whole like war between science and and um and, and virtue, basically. Like, the, the war between science and religion is how they got to the point where this man creates an atom bomb that almost they thought may destroy the universe. And even if it didn't destroy the universe, they still melted human beings like ice on a warm day. You know what I'm saying? That, like, our technology now is at odds with our virtue. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, and that somehow virtue is getting in the way of our technology. Right. Like, all of that comes from what is it that the... What is it that the uh, that the that God is here to tell us? Whereas, you know, in the Islamic story, the idea that greed is is what takes us away from God. So if we look like at those two stories, one of them, one of those stories caused the modern mess that we're in, and the other one warns us of the modern mess that we're in and offers the solution to it. Do you know what I'm saying? That you're that that you're you're greed to have what doesn't belong to you, mm-hmm. you to own things that aren't yours to own, such as your life. Like you don't own yourself even. So like the idea of you living forever is like this is a this is a you know amazing. And 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 not to mention. Um, you know the story, uh, the this like the way that the biblical scholars understand when Noah, when the earth is flooded, and Noah's children, he's got you know he's supposedly they say that Noah is this like drunken, mm-hmm. a crazy person that doesn't know if he's really a prophet or if he, you know what I mean. This person who served God for like 950 years, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, is somehow this drunkard who doesn't know what he's doing. Like the only human being basically that got saved in the entire world and tried to save the world. And when the world rejected him, went on and was saved by himself. Now we're supposed to believe he's like this, this like, this like dysfunctional drunk. You know what I'm saying? Alcoholic, uh, maniac, lunatic. <laughs> Um, but then, so then, like, so then he has these sons, and his sons see him naked on the beach, drunk, like, celebrating what? The fact that the world, like, you know what I'm saying? And that one of them covered his nakedness, and he got to stay white. And then the other ones, you know what I'm saying, had different gradations of. <laughs> is that actually in the Bible? Is that just like an interpretation of that story? That Imam Muhammad Muhammad said that that's not in the Bible, but that it's an, that it's an interpretation yeah, that came later. Right. I'm, I've never read the Bible, but remember, there I'm is the, like a curse of Ham. But yeah, no, that's what it is. And so, that, so yeah, then there's like a one of the children like straight up laughed at him and was mocking him and all this right. kind of stuff, and that he was cursed black, and that his children were the servants for humanity for the rest of time. So we share a common, um, you know, mentor and you know teacher in, in Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah. And one of the things that he always points out that I think is so amazing, especially just in the, like, the way that he says it, but the idea that 
like look at ancient language. Hmm. You know what I mean? Anyway, it says in Arabic is ten thousand years old. <laughs> it's like, man. And how do you, how do you know this? You know what I mean? But he knows it. I would never. I would love to see somebody try to argue that yeah. fact with him. But just like this idea that like the ancientness of a language like Arabic mm-hmm. and the amazing precision, beauty, like the fact that, and you know this better than me, but like the 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 precision of Arabic, the, the beauty of Arabic, um, the the layers and gradations of meaning are literally infinite. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like we know people who have dedicated their lives to mastering this language, and they say that it's utterly unmasterable. It's like trying to master space. You know what I mean? It's it's that it, we don't we don't know where space stops, and they don't know where Arabic stops. Like literally, like these people have been working on it for all of these centuries, and they don't know where it stops. So, this is a language that like ancient people had, and like here we are. And I've got a 15-year-old, and I think he's a relatively smart dude. You know what I mean? But it's very difficult for him to remember there, there, and there. Two, two, and two. Um, your and your. You know what I mean? It's very difficult for him. And it's not just because he's in private school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like some of the, the youth that I work with. I mean, you and I just were in a place where we were working with youth that go to the best schools on earth. Mm-hmm. Like these are elite kids that go to like the best supposedly educational institution that the West has to offer. And I'm saying, like, I t- I've been texting with some of them, and I love them. If you if you hear this, it's, I'm not dissing you. But I'm saying, like, their punctuation and their... And I'm not edgy. I didn't graduate from high school. In a public high school, in the hood. You know what I'm saying? My understanding and, like, my actual, like, use for, for basic punctuation and, and st- sentence structure and things like this... It's like, man, what are we really talking about at the end of the day? What are we really talking about? And like he said, yeah, we, they, they couldn't build an iPod, but they built human beings. Mm-hmm. Man, come on, man. And that exactly right. And that's one of the things. It's like the further languages were more complex, the further back they get. Mm-hmm. And then they simplified and they broke down. Like it's not like how do you explain that if those freaking you know, people were just cavemen freaking babbling, like, no. And, again, like what you're saying, they didn't build iPads, but they built human beings. Mm -hmm. So, the question is, what is the purpose of human existence? Because if we're talking about progress, you are not saying it. But, hidden in that is an assumption of what it means to be a human being and what the purpose of life on Earth is. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And if it is to have more freaking technology and to be able to uh, travel at further distances and to measure and quantify Mm -hmm. the physical, tangible world. Okay. But that's, that's not even a scientific position. That's a philosophical position. That's right. You're making a a religious, philosophical, theological statement Mm -hmm. about existence mm-hmm. which your tools don't allow you to make so it's, you can't right. you can't measure that you can't confirm that you can't test that that hypothesis right um, yeah you're using like like physical sciences to yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, yeah, so, and, and I mean, it ultimately gets down to like this like reductionist way of looking at things that really is divide and conquer. It really gets back to domination, um, owning ourselves, owning the world, owning other people, owning the environment, owning the physical world mm-hmm. in an attempt to live forever. Mm-hmm. It ultimately is, is what, you know, the, the Islamic creation story says, the purpose of the, you know, eating the tree and all this stuff. These people thought, like, go into this area that you've been told not to go into. Mm-hmm. You have no reason to know why not to go in there, but if you go in there, you know, and you're, you're given everything. It, Allah literally says, eat anything you want to. So everything that's here is for you, except for this. And then, and then you know, the enemy comes and says, but that's the one thing that will give you everything. Mm-hmm. But you have everything except that. It's just that you want everything and you want that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, like, literally, that's what these people, that's, like, what this whole philosophy is, that, like, you you reduce everything, um, you know, you reduce a, a everything down to the, the most minuscule level that we can find of it, and then you just master that one thing, and then you divide and you conquer the knowledge, even, the way that they divide and conquer people. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, like the logical question, I think, is that we get to this and we and we look and we see that like no sane, rational, sound, healthy, rooted, grounded, loving person thinks that this is it, like that this is the way to live. Like there literally is. I don't think there's anybody who it has any kind of like consciousness. You know, there's always like a lot, like a whole lot of people that um just kind of go along with whatever they're just not questioners mm-hmm. they're just they're not mm-hmm. they're not lay awake at night wondering what's my life about people they used to be but you know whatever but then so then you know i i, I don't know many people that feel like we're winning even the average person like even the person who's not really like delving deeply into things if you talk to them about things like you know, they all know that our food isn't real food. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a commonly known thing. And that we don't even know how to get back to real food again. Um, or, like, you know, they know that uh, that the way we're governing each other isn't, isn't an original way of doing that. And the way that we're interacting with each other and... You the know. way that wealth and resources are distributed isn't fair. It's, right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people... You know, <laughs> starving, and there's a lot of people dying of obesity and food-related things. You know what I mean? It's like, where are we at? Yeah, I'm saying like the the majority <laughs> of like the conscious world understands this to be mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so like the next logical thing is like, at what point is there like a like? Does this get to a place where people? are so fed up you know like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf said this world is just crazy enough to drive you to God Mm. you know what I mean Mm -hmm. you know I can remember thinking to myself 
you know and now it feels very stupid but I remember thinking to myself like when I would hear about these old scholars from 600 years ago and I won't say their names because the thing that I'm going to say about them is just going to reveal uh, a deep ignorance and stupidity that I had at one point that's really blameworthy I think and really was like damaging to me but like I used to think about some of these people and like I would think that in a certain ways I was better than them you know what I mean? And like you said, these are living libraries of human beings. Like these are people who literally um, were like polymaths and knew, you know, new language and new archery and new calligraphy and new, um, you know, the the entire history. So I mean, some of these people wrote history, encyclopedic histories of the world. Like one person with no internet and barely a boat to be able to get across the water, but write a fairly accurate like history of the entire world mm -hmm. with no carbon dating and no you know what I mean all of this stuff and write on like 37 topics including like how to remove cataracts and logic and philosophy and mysticism and poetry and and astronomy yeah you know, I mean? you know what I mean at very high levels mm -hmm. you know what I mean and I'm and, and here I am you know, on Wikipedia reading about this person and being like, you know, and not even really realizing all those things, but just somebody telling me or just like reminding me, like, let's not forget the greatness of some of these individuals and like what they really have contributed in the way of wisdom of how we should be looking at our lives and what what are their what are their echoing messages? How are those <laughs> messages challenging me? you know sitting in front of my laptop you know what i mean mm -hmm. and and i literally there were times where i would think to myself yeah but this person lived during whatever mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you know but yeah this is a this is a this is an ancient person who is uh you know primitive these people yeah. are primitive you know what i mean and like that is such a real thing like that that has really you know taken all of the meaning and the beauty out of our tradition and just completely made it an identity and just a badge of identity you know what i mean uh, what people call political Islam. It's really identity Islam. It's really like my meanness is better than your you-ness. Um, yeah, I think people have, I mean, a lot of the Muslim world is suffering from a really deep inferiority complex because of colonization and because of other reasons. And so, I mean, it's really sad to see in the Muslim world so many young people that they really genuinely associate like the way of their people, mm. the way of their ancestors as backwardness. Like really, they really believe that in their heart, that this is backwards, this is like how our grandparents did it, but like how the French dress, right. like skinny jeans, like yo, no, like, you know what I mean? Like the way they see the world, the way they do things. You, oh, America, like American art, American music, like that's progress. Like right. they really bought in and it's, you're done then at that point. Like until you get like you've you drank the Kool-Aid, man. And what? So, OK, so here's something that we've talked about before. And like after we just had this, you know, this like really great like time together in um, Spain, like researching these things and like learning from our teachers. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's this kind of like feeling among our generation. I don't, and I'm, I guess I'm not sure. And that's my question for you. Like, 
Um, among our peers, though, among like the people that we you know see as like our spiritual, intellectual, artistic, like our peers, like the people who are like, we're doing this Muslim thing as 30-something-year-old American whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, we we seem to kind of have a consensus that white supremacy, Eurocentrism is at the very center of this problem. Mm-hmm. A lot of our teachers don't describe it that way. And, when, and, and I'm... I'm, I'm I guess I'm coloring the question with my answer, but I th- I think that there's like a I think there's a generational thing about it almost. You know what I mean? Where a lot of them didn't a lot of them don't see it that way or they don't present it that way. Like they don't pre- they like they present this stuff as a problem but like with modernity or like a problem with you know what I mean, but they don't really address the race question head on. Right. Like that, real that that like that. All of this stuff is part and parcel to, you know, basically Europeans deciding to stop being like, all right, yeah, I know I'm Irish and you're English and he's Polish and he's German, but if we decide to be white, then we can go conquer the rest of the world and make them all be us, basically. And then anything we fight over after that is who gets what in the rest of the non-white world. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, World War II is so much of of that is about, like, well, I want this part of Africa. You know what I'm saying? No, we want this part of Africa or whatever, you know? So I'm saying, like, what is it in the 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 like prominent islamic mm-hmm. leadership that's not i'm saying they're very like specific and like they have a lot of precision in talking about things like you know we just heard a whole bunch of stuff about the way that architecture is like you know and we've heard all kind of stuff about environment the environment stuff and the technology stuff and the you know, the academy and the reductionists, et cetera. But we don't hear them really talking about the race thing. I'm saying, like, can you give me some type of, you as being somebody closer to this class of people than I am and having Mm. followed them for longer and clearly, you know, thinking similar to what, you know, where is the disconnect? Yeah, man. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I think... Some of them have do deal with that, and I think it's a it's a huge issue. One thing that Dr. Sherman Jackson said that was really interesting. He was talking about the fact that you, when you think about the prophetic message and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, living in his time period, when he said La ilaha illallah, when he said there is no god but God, there is no divinity but the divinity. He said that was the most radical thing you could say. Like, you were telling these people water isn't wet. Mm-hmm. You see, like, their assumption and their understanding of the world, you were radically challenging it mm-hmm. in the most fundamental way because these were polytheistic people that believed in the power of all these, you know, lesser deities. And their religion was their lives. Like, their religion was <laughs> And that everything. was just their culture. That was their life. That was their, their economic sustainability because of the pilgrimage around it and all that thing. So you're telling them that none of that is real. And that's the most revolutionary thing you could say. And Dr. J was saying, now, if you were to go to the average person on the street in America and say, there is no God but the one true God, they'd be like, I know, dude, what are you talking about? Like, leave me alone. Like, they wouldn't actually disagree with you. Right. 
which poses an interesting uh, point to reflect on, which is that has la ilaha illallah become less revolutionary? And the point that I think he was getting at is, of course, not. Mm-hmm. But that we have just not identified the idols of our time and articulated la ilaha illallah at them. Because there's nothing more Amazing. Right. than la ilaha illallah. Right, and right, one, right, right, I would right. argue, I, he didn't mention this in this specific conversation we're having, mm-hmm. but the, one of the primary idols of our time is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Clearly undoubtedly and destroys you know it it, it it veils the hearts of so many people and it destroys so many people's lives and it's really unbelievable it's pervasiveness and if we're not our, you you know understand our tradition has the answer to that I mean the Prophet Sallallahu his life is the answer to that his teachings are the answer to that 1400 years ago you know, I mean, he's literally the first person in recorded history to say there's no superiority between a white and a black, black and a white, Arab, non-Arab, uh, except for in God consciousness. Mm. Like he's like to make a universal statement that racism is unfounded. Like, I, I don't know if you can find one in the historical record before that. And so the point is that this tradition has in it the healing to that disease, the ultimately disease. But if we fail to, you know, apply the cure to the sickness, then who do we have to blame but ourselves, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, the question you raise is is an interesting one, and I don't necessarily have the answer. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it seems to be... You know, as soon as I became aware of, you know, and I mean, partially like part of what I'm talking about um, is that, you know, I was I was raised in a, in a very isolated Islamic community that's right. really unique in that sense. That like no other group of Muslims came and taught them Islam, my right. community. Mm-hmm. Like basically we had a person who knew that a lot of the African-American, a lot of the enslaved Africans who were brought to America were Muslim. A lot of them were, you know, great scholars and sages and descendants of the prophets and descendants of the companions of the prophets and things like that. And, but also would come and try to teach Islam. And there were people that did that. Like there were people that came and taught Islam. Um, but there was no kind of like movement of it. It would never like took on any kind of like you know social like um, uh, inertia or like you know uh, and it never really picked up momentum. <laughs> um, and so there, you know, this person came from the Indian subcontinent, probably, and you know had dealt with some colonialism and had some idea for like what internalized white supremacy is about and all that kind of stuff, and basically gave people a creation myth that he thought would one day lead them to the ability to be able to comprehend the idea of Islam, yeah. that like you're a vicegerent, you're a reflection of God, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So he basically gave them. They said, right now you have God in the form of a white person. And you think that you're the devil, but you are a reflection of God. So he gave them God, the idea of God as a black person uh, to basically, you know, counteract or contradict that. So eventually these people have like a, you know, um, so you have 1930 to 1975. So like, you know what I mean? You basically have 45 years of that. And then somebody says, 
and then and then somebody basically is able to to you know re-examine the Islamic tradition, and so this whole community developed without much influence mm-hmm. from the tradition from the global Muslim community, like it really was in a vacuum, and even from '75 until now, you know you have like entire mosques of people who their leader read the read in English for the most part English translation of the Quran. He did read and write Arabic and his knowledge of Arabic was good. Um, Imam Muhammad. Imam Murtadi Muhammad, God have mercy on him, my mm-hmm. teacher and my you know, the person who brought me into Islam and made me love Islam. Um, you know, but I mean he wasn't a classically trained you know, he didn't. He didn't like go to Al Azhar and Cairo and study Islam from anybody. He basically, with a pure, like a, a innocent heart, read the source materials and asked for guidance and received it and guided people really amazingly well. Um, so all that to say that, like, I didn't have access or didn't really understand that this tradition even existed, and my understanding of Islam was that. You know, this is the religion that's here to save us from what's being done. Save that community from what's being done to it. Then, you know, I get reintroduced or I get introduced to the tradition and like all of these traditional teachers. And it really seems to me like the only ones like really identifying white supremacy as what as like the way that you would put it. One of the idols of our time are the African-American ones. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and all of them mention it. All of them say it, you know what I mean? Um, but in terms of like when when they give their their you know talks and, and when they have this discourse about this is the evidence of where the modern world is wrong, it's not central to them. No. It's not central. You know what I mean? And and you know, I asked like one of my teachers recently, like I just asked him, is is it central or is it a peripheral thing? And he literally was like, "That's a that's a good question," you know. And it just kind of made me like, it just kind of, I was kind of taken aback that like, I wonder for for people outside of just the, of the African American experience mm-hmm. to acknowledge white supremacy as a, a central disease, a central idol of our time. I, I just really wonder if that's a generational thing. And part of why I wonder that is, does this mean that our generation is going to be the one to really finally diagnose that? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And I mean, it's not, that's the thing is, it's not like it's only something affecting African-Americans. Like, look at just the bleaching cream industry in India, Pakistan, yeah. North Africa. Somalia. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Yeah. It's, it's it's. I mean, yeah, we have Somali uh, Somali people in the Twin Cities that are, their babies are being affected. Mm. You know what I mean? God help us, man. But yeah, they're because the, those creams have uh, mercury in them, mm. and so people are bleaching, you know, bleaching their bodies, and while you know while they're pregnant, and uh, and the babies are being being hurt. 
Yeah, and, and, it's, it, it's, and I'm sorry, not to cut you off, but like we talking about, it doesn't only affect. I'm saying it's a disease that also affects people who have been convinced, like are buying into the idea of whiteness as their identity on absolutely. earth. Absolutely, like that is like you know what I mean. And this is like two European American people talking to each other for people that can't see see us right now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like people that like identify themselves before they learn who they are, mm-hmm. before they learn anything about themselves, before they speak a language, before they have any kind of before they learn the Star Spangled Banner and the George Washington and the Cherry Tree and the Constitution or anything about who they are or the Bible or whatever like believe that there's this thing called white and that's what I am mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like yeah yeah some, some I'm <coughs> no it's a trip man and I think you know it, what you say is important man and, and I don't really necessarily have the answer and I think in fact, um, again, even if you're talking about people that, you know, even if you're saying, oh, well, we're, you know, you know, within the community, outside of the community, like, it's affecting everyone. So it's like there's no reason not to talk about it. And it's almost like missing the, this golden opportunity. And then there's also the reality of just a continuity and understanding, like, the first settlement of Islam in these lands you know what I mean and it's like Islam was you know as a communal religion here in America was the upliftment of black people and the liberation from white supremacy Mm -hmm. it was the it was the cure Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? Like, so to, to kind of just totally neglect right. that. And, like, that's what the average American even associates it with. Like, right. that, like you know what I mean? And it's interesting to think that with all of the kind of conversation around police brutality, Black Lives Matter, um, racial injustice, all the kind of like old racial tensions that are flared up by Obama's presidency and just the racial tension of our moment, Mm -hmm. like to miss the boat on that, like to not be dialed into that, to not have nothing to say about it, to not be cued into that. It's just like, you can't be more negligent of really the prophetic inheritance in a real way. And it's interesting that people like Farrakhan I mean, I'm really fascinated by the fact that, like, you know, you see so many people that, you know, followed Imam Muhammad into al-Islam, into, you know, you know, what, what, what is, you know, traditional Islam. Mm-hmm. And, but after his passing, you're seeing, it feels to me like a lot of people though having theological differences with Farrakhan seeing you know people it feels like there's a gravitation towards him again as this figure who's speaking to certain realities Mm -hmm. and who's talking about things and who has the ability to galvanize people around certain causes and um, I'm just fascinated by that and I wonder what you think about that and I also wonder because there's this real tension for a lot of I feel like for a lot of people around Farrakhan because you know some people 
love him and reconcile with him, but there's still a lot of people that hold on to Malcolm and can't, you know, won't let go of the fact that, like, he had something to do with that and it's like admitted that he had something to do with Malcolm's martyrdom and I'm not sure personally about all the details of mm. that but like what what do you what do you do with that right I mean there's a lot there so um the so the idea is so several things one uh, the idea of Farrakhan's interaction with Malcolm and how people are so hung up on that, I think really speaks to the idea that people do not fully comprehend the reality that Malcolm exists because of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Like there literally is not a Malcolm X without the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Right. And the way that Manny Marable wrote the book about him and the way that like history has kind of written it, um, it kind of seems like, you know, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is this just kind of this just, just anchor around Malcolm's neck. And then once he finally throws that off, now he's free. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that could not be further from the truth. And nobody that really knows and understands Malcolm would really present it that way. And it's to me, that's one of the more problem. That's the most problematic thing in my mind about the Manny Marable book, hmm. you know what I mean, is that he really downplays the Nation of Islam, makes it seem like, you know, Marable has his own, everybody wants to own Malcolm because everybody sees the best of themselves in Malcolm, hmm. the same way they do with the, with the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa So, like, they, you know, people, Manny Marable wants to see Malcolm as being this, like, Polit- politically in the same space as him. You know what I mean? So he talks about the nation of Islam and constantly calls him a sect and constantly talks about, you know, Elijah Muhammad's failure to recognize the political reality. Like, literally, he's saying Elijah Muhammad doesn't recognize the political reality and Malcolm is this political mastermind. And so the way that that relates to Farrakhan is that everybody within the nation of Islam knew that that organization existed because of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's leadership of it and growth of it and and stewardship of it. And so no one person is bigger than the movement. That's the way they saw it. And and that movement, and, and Malcolm's part of who taught them that. And Malcolm was the one of the greatest examples of that. And that movement is what made Malcolm who he was. There's no, there's no, you know, sitting in the, in, in, uh, in the cell, you know, studying for 14 hours a day until his eyes go bad and he needs glasses. And there's no, you know, aardvark, like, like reading and, and copying the entire dictionary and um, you know mastering classical works from that were like donated from Harvard to the prison that he was in there's none of that there's no um, courage to like to stand there and debate with anybody in the world there's no there's none of that he has the nobody gives him the permission to do that except for the honorable Elijah Muhammad and the community around him. So anything that Malcolm says, he's very brave, but everything he says, there's a community of people around him with their own laws and with their own... So when he talks, the gravity of it comes from the fact that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was a community organizer in the truest sense of the word. And there's and he's second... I mean, the only one that you could even compare to him in the history of black people in this country is Frederick Douglass. Um, 
And there's a great case to be made for the idea that Elon and Elijah Muhammad was more successful than Frederick Douglass, even though he, he definitely built off him. But so when so when Malcolm starts to speak against the leader of the Nation of Islam and starts to want to be free, the idea at that time is that you are not the movement. Other people outside of us might think that you're the most, um, you know, marketable. And I there's no way to denigrate Malcolm, but like the way that they were looking at it is like, yeah, the you know uh, Mike Wallace, uh, who built his whole career on the Nation of Islam, uh, might see you as the mo- as the yummiest one to put on TV, but in reality, it, you know, we were a community before you were going to be a community after you, and so Farrakhan really saw Malcolm as. Uh, as, as a threat to the fabric of society within that group. And so whether or not he had any personal jealousy or something like that, you know what I mean? That's Nobody can really say that for sure. That's an all an assumption. So um, the idea that somehow Farrakhan was the one that made everybody mad against Malcolm, Farrakhan was the, the when Malcolm left, he was the best spokesman for Elijah Muhammad. And I mean, that's undeniable. Anybody that's heard Farrakhan speak knows why that is. Um, so I, I think that whole idea of like blaming Farrakhan. Now, since then, and I'm not a follower of Farrakhan. I love him. I, I genuinely love him. Um, but he, you know, got together with uh, Betty Shabazz. There's there's a the the footage of it is on YouTube. They went to the Apollo, and Betty Shabazz is very very uh, graceful and magnanimous in that moment, because she stands up there on stage with Minister Farrakhan. Uh, this is in you know the late '80s, early '90s maybe, and she says, "I pray to the God of our ancestors that you're guided and that you're in the best of your intentions are successful," and. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And then when one of Malcolm's daughters is charged by the government with a plot to kill Farrakhan, Farrakhan hires the best lawyers to to help her with that case and then takes her on television and apologizes to her. And then a lot of people say that the Million Man March being a day of atonement, there's an opinion that... um, Farrakhan was his own personal atonement was atoning for that and since then all the all the black public figures that Farrakhan has parted companies with he's never he's never uh, like publicly spoken against them Jesse Jackson stepped away from him we love brother Jesse Barack Obama dissed him we love our brother Barack Obama he might offer critique but he never came out and said the things that he said about Malcolm or any of that ever again even Khaled Abdul Muhammad, you know what I mean. When he left the Nation of Islam, you know we we you know we we feel for our brother, we disagree with our brother, but we love our brother, you know. So that basically really gets to the lack of understanding about the fact that that was a real community, that was a real community that existed in this country, and and. Um, our brother Sohail, who wrote Black Star Crescent Moon, said that's the closest thing that there was to a caliphate within. Like that was, you talking about the Islamic State, that was an Islamic State. Mm-hmm. They had courts, they had laws, they had enforcers, they had taxes, they had their own welfare system, they took care of people, they had health and human services, they had everything that a society and a, and media. a co- <laughs> media, yeah, I mean, they literally had everything within that thing. So that's that part of it. Um, in my, my opinion is, and this is something that I'm just now starting to be a little bit vocal about, um, 
and and I, I know that there will be some backlash to this and and I say it just because I'm reporting my experience on what is happening in my heart but part of why I think that people are moving back towards Minister Farrakhan after having you know basically Elijah Muhammad uh, Allah have mercy on him passed away and you had two different camps or two different developments uh, Imam Warathadeh Muhammad God have mercy on him basically says um, the things that we were taught about the creation story, this like new creation myth, um, he says it's myth, which doesn't necessarily mean it's not true, but it means that it's a symbolic, synthetic kind of story. Um, that that's not from Islam. That's what he says. That's not from Islam. And in that sense, it's not it's not truth on the level of Quranic truth. The Quran is the truth. And this is what we're going to base our lives on. We're going to root ourselves in this and not in the stuff that Farad brought us. Um, and he risked death. Like, he, you know, he spends the next, like, several years with people literally attempting to assassinate him at every turn. And, and, he, and then after that, after that's well established, then he says, okay, now let's look at this as a creation myth and see if there's anything valuable about it. Farrakhan, on the other hand, says... This is our truth. This myth, this story is why we're us, and we're not leaving it. And if we and if we go back to the Islamic tradition, we're we're integrating the two. Well, there's no world where these are where the where there's one and not the other. They're not mutually exclusive. You know what I'm saying? And these things point to each other, and we're gonna set about proving that. Um, right, which is a outwardly some pretty seemingly contradictory theological positions. Right. So it's just It takes a lot of gymnastics to get to that. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's it's a really interesting thing that like to watch the younger generation of thought leaders in the nation of Islam who are really amazing human beings. Um, you know, people like Minister Abel Muhammad in Chicago, people like uh, Minister Nori Muhammad in Muhammad's Mosque Number 74 in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, um, are amazing human beings and like watching them kind of live that out in real time you know, in constant service to justice in the community is like a really impressive thing. And then not to mention Imam Sultan Rahman Muhammad, who's a classically trained imam in Damascus and is the national imam of the nation of Islam. And when you when you listen to like his Juma uh, sermons, his Friday sermons, you know, you hear him teaching Islam uh, traditional Islam and then referencing certain things within the, the Elijah Muhammad's uh, language that was pointing to that. So he'll teach an Islamic principle and then he'll say in Message to the Black Man, page 131, you know, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said so-and-so and he was pointing towards this. So all of that is really interesting, but any any Imam Muhammad Muhammad's community, which is my community, there was a lot of independent growth and a lot of like independent, almost isolated growth that created like a, an amazing tradition of and relationship with the Quran and the and the tradition of the Prophet peace be upon him, where where people were looking at the source texts. Um, and really with their own connection to God, um, interpreting them 
into the modern context in really amazing, like creative, beautiful ways. And a lot of the, the, the conclusions that Imam Muhammad came to and the people around him came to, you see a great scholar like Sheikh Ben Bayah, uh, Sheikh Abdullah Ben Bayah, uh, may God preserve him, um, as one of the most renowned Islamic scholars, coming to a lot of the same conclusions that Imam Muhammad came to. Uh, you know, when people were kind of writing him off as like he has no chain of narration that goes back to the prophet so peace be upon him so why do we have to listen to this person he's no legitimacy arriving at the same conclusions and you see somebody like dr jackson who does have that uh both academic western academic um uh you know framework and also traditional islamic academic framework um being asked like well you know what's up with the fact that you're basically arriving at the same conclusions of imam muhammad and him saying you're right you're 100% right. After all of this, I'm coming to a lot of the same conclusions as Imam Muhammad came to. Um, but in Imam Muhammad's community, he started, he got to a point where, you know, he was visiting Syria. He was talking to uh, Sufi sheikhs. He was he was engaging with the tradition. He was changing some of his, his opinions on things. Uh, you, you know, at one point he said that, he thought Muslim women should be able to marry non-Muslim men if they were living good lives and, and would be good fathers to their children and stuff. He came back and changed that and said, I realize that that's an extremely minority opinion and I don't want to be in an extremely minority situation in the Muslim tradition. Mm-hmm. I want to be with the majority, the hand of God's on the majority. So like you start to see him and he sends the brightest his brightest students to go study in Damascus under a Sufi sheikh who's a traditionalist. You know what I mean? Um, so you start to see these things happen, but what effectively hasn't happened in the intelligentsia of that community is that they haven't really gone and engaged the, the tradition in really, really um, profound ways. They haven't gone and done that kind of like study. And so now people in our community, um, we don't have an influx of like, uh, of like new principles and concepts. Our teacher isn't here to, 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 you know, translate current events for us. Our teacher isn't here to give us new insights that, that he's received. Um, and so basically it's, we're intellectually stagnant and almost spiritually stagnant where we made a lot of progress, but what's next? Cause there's not another Imam Muhammad. Imam Muhammad is a person who was chosen by God to do the work that he did, and he did it masterfully. But there's not another. Everybody agrees on that. There's not another Imam Muhammad. So, like, where's the growth come from? Is this, do we just know everything that we're going to know? So, without that stuff, you know, and we've also de- kind of like developed, you know, this kind of like subconscious idea that like the traditionalist Muslims are out to get us. They don't respect us. They don't love us. Mm-hmm. And so. Why should we go study with, you know, some sheikh? Like, I mean, I, I hear imams in the, you know, in Juma saying, you know, some sheikh can't bring you the water, brother. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They can't, he can't bring you the meaning for, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You got to so-and-so. And, um, and so without any, like, new energy in the, in the, in, in the community and without any, like, new stuff, Farrakhan's very attractive, because Farrakhan is, is, you know, bringing us something current. And Farrakhan, like, gives people somewhere to keep, a way to keep going on the path. 
You know what I mean? Because he's back to that idea. Like when the Nation of Islam was in introduced, there was a sign that was on every wall. And on the four corners, it would say freedom, justice, equality. Oh, no, the, the, the flag, sorry. Freedom, justice, equality, Islam. And like, this is what Islam was to the people. This is what gets you freedom, justice, and equality. Um, and so I, I think that it's like, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's very um, stimulating to people to, to have somebody to still go to and like further their study in a way, you know. And to me, it's very clear that Imam Muhammad was, thought that we were ready I, th I personally think that he was really reluctant to just throw us into the ocean of Islamic tradition before we had a, were really grounded in why did God choose to give us Islam when nobody brought it to us. Nobody brought Islam to that community but God. And it's very unique in that way. I don't know of other societies that had happened like that. All the other societies that I know of, some Muslims went there and started teaching, and then over time, or they, or some of them were conquered, and then you know people lived under Islam and they liked it, and you know somebody would decide that paying zakat is better than paying the 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 jizya or whatever, you know. Yeah. No, it's. <laughs> It's really fascinating, and on some level, it's like, you know, I hear everything you're saying, and, and like, just almost like, one of my thoughts, because like the first weekend we really connected was, uh, we did that show with Iman mm -hmm. in Chicago, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> you were like the special guest, you know what's funny about that show? I was like the headliner, and Yuna opened for me. And now it's just she's Yuna, and I'm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like it was yeah. Hilarious. And I, yeah, I remember her showing up and being like, "Okay, who's this? You know, who's this like really uh, amazing singer? You know what I mean?" Yeah. And I remember that like when she got on stage, like three sisters were like, "Whoa!" Like they were really excited, and I was like, "Oh, there's a few people that know who she is. That's tight." Like, go ahead, sis. Oh, she's killing it. Yeah. But anyway, the next day, or the next day was Savior's Day. Right. And uh, that was a beautiful experience, man, with Big Samir. Um. But one of the things that I'm reflecting on is like, they have you know in the nation and in WD Muhammad's community by extension, it's like. They have this very unique history and this beautiful trajectory and this amazing, amazing journey and voyage. And it's like, unfortunately, most of the traditional, you know, immigrant Muslims, they're not even aware of it. Right let alone respectful of it, right. let alone able to honor it and meet these individuals with the specific needs that they have. Because it's like on some level, you know, the insularness of the Imam Muhammad community that you see like in certain communities, you know, where it's like, no, we don't want to interact with like the broader Muslim community like right. we don't we're not going to come to your events you're not going to come to ours like you can keep inviting us but no you know and like to break down that wall a lot of it is just, I feel like is is reactionary when you when you know 
people came and you had something that was beautiful and that you were negotiating your realities and learning and then people came and were like yo that's not real right like what are you guys talking about well not even that's not real that doesn't exist right like it just straight up didn't exist Mm -hmm. like they didn't come and debate they didn't come and talk they didn't come and they didn't come period Mm-hmm. Like these people literally acted like there were no Muslims where they right. went. And they definitely didn't come and be like, yo, tell us your story. Right. And how can we learn and how can we understand? And how do we be Muslim here? <laughs> how do we be not white here? Mm-hmm. How do we be an other in this place? Mm-hmm. How are you still alive? How are you still alive after all of this? And, and, and like not only still alive, but like still seeking God. Yeah. And so it's like, it's almost like the broader community isn't necessarily ready. It's almost like the, there's a there's a certain level of, it's not like, you know, internally, it may be internally not ready to expand to the broader community, but it's like the broader community isn't ready to, to absorb, them. absorb them in a way that will not totally like dislocate right. and like shatter everything that's been built. Right. And um Yeah, I don't I don't know what to make. I mean, you know, we have examples of like individuals, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like there I think individual. it's happening. I think it's changing. I think right. you're seeing in the Bay Area, I mean, you're seeing people that came out of that community who are I mean you know in our circles man like in the bay like Imam Muhammad is honored as like one of the the pioneers like by everyone it's as far as I'm concerned as far as I'm concerned like maybe not it might not be the central but people honor that you know like if you go to Tet Leaf you'll hear him mention you go to Zaytuna you'll hear him mention I, I was at I mean I, I, I didn't you know, I didn't study as they. T- I like I went mm-hmm. to their summer Arabic. That's not going to Zaytuna. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got there and was talking to the star students at Zaytuna and was and became good friends with them, mm-hmm. they asked me to give a talk. You know, because I'm a rapper and they're like, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of like their way of being like, you know, let's show our students how that we're cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know. Um, so I'm talking about Imam Wathadi Muhammad, and the top students did not know him. Mm. They knew Malcolm. They did not know about him. I mean, they, they may have heard his name, but he's not taught there. Mm. He's not taught there. Um, and I remember saying to them that, like, one of the greatest keepers of that tradition is uh, Imam Fahim Shuaib, mm-hmm. who's right here in the Bay Area, who's, like, right, right here. You know what I mean? He's right here in Oakland. And, I mean, literally, in terms of people, you know, Imam Muhammad had a few imams around him who really were his, like, intellectual squad. Like, they really were the people that got what he was saying and were helping the people get it. Fahim Shawaib was right at the front of that. You know what I mean? And he was a person that had some academic... Uh, you know, uh, uh, capability and uh, aptitude, and and not that the others didn't, but he did particularly. Where Imam Muhammad would just kind of make a statement about something, and then Fahim Shawaib 
in, in independent study and research, just being he's an amazingly well-read man, would would present all of this like surrounding supporting information from history and geology and psychology and uh, physics and you know anthropology and, and stuff that would support that would kind of like give the context for like look at what the imam is saying here, you know, um, and like they had no idea who that was. Mm. They had no idea who he was. They, I mean, nobody had ever... Like, the idea of, like, we're going to go to the, the black mosque. Like, they would go to the Lighthouse Mosque, which is great. Um, you know, and that's the that's the masjid that, uh, you know, founded by Imam Zaid and Talif. Talif helped to, you know, found that mosque. Um, so, you know, I, you hear it at Talif because Usama Cannon, mm-hmm. God preserve him. You know, not that he's old or anything, but... I just need him around here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, he uh, he came through that tradition. Him and you know he and his his friends came through that tradition. But I don't hear, and that's kind of what part of what I'm asking you, as somebody who knows this. I don't hear it. I don't hear it talked about in in the the circles of learning. Um, some of these people mentioned Imam Muhammad after he died. But a lot of them, I mean, um, a lot of these individuals, especially all the African-American ones, came through uh, something related to Imam Muhammad. They're, they're Muslim because of something related to Imam Muhammad. Like all of the main intellectual figures that I can think of in our community, the, thought, the black thought leaders in our community, some sort of proximity. Dr. Jackson mentioned him while he was alive. And... and you know, mention what he did, acknowledge what he did, partially posed the challenge to him as well. You know what I mean? Like the idea that like there was his first resurrection that your father, that his father had, his is a second resurrection. The third resurrection is now engaging the tradition, which, um, you know, is not completely separate from what started to happen and from Mm -hmm. what I'm hoping to see be continued. Um, but even in this tradition, I don't. Even in even in the Bay, I don't see it happening the way that the way that it seems so obvious for it to happen. Um, you know the the folks that the folks that are sitting with Shiuch and the folks that are. I mean, I don't see them interacting with the community. I don't see them interacting with another another one who's here, who's less known as Imam Enrique Rashid. Um, I mean, he was a very, very close. He worked very closely with Imam Muhammad. He's the one that told me that Imam Muhammad came back from visiting Sheikh Kuftaro, who Imam Muhammad called him his Imam. Uh, and this is a, a, a great, you know, Naqshbandi Sufi scholar who started a, a school, you know. And Imam Muhammad said, that's my Imam, and started and sent his students there. And then came back and with, with dhikr beads saying, the, you know the Sufis use these, and you know what I'm saying like telling his imams in a closed imams meeting, elite imams meeting, saying, you know the Sufis they get these beads and they and they and they get the names of Allah and they you know look they say Allah 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 clicking the beads. Mm-hmm. He's like and it, you know it, it might look silly to you, but then when you stop, your heart is still saying Allah Allah Allah, mm-hmm. and like we need to study this and we need to implement this. You know what I mean? So. You have these people who know this, right? And then you have these great, like, people of of spirituality, all in the same city. And that's it's not happening 
I don't I, I don't see it like and it's very very I have a sense of like anger about it man partially because I didn't know about it for so long I had to spend a lot of money and time to come out here and insert myself into this community mm-hmm. which are luxuries afforded to me by the fact that I'm, a, I'm an entertainer I'm you know what I mean uh, uh, you know so I'm like, man, yeah, why I didn't I know about this? I mean, the circles that I'm in, it is acknowledged, I guess. But I guess, yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, so, but look at, look at. I'm saying, and I, I, the, I'm, I'm holding back some things because no one person or group deserves to be called out as like they're the problem. Mm-hmm. So, so without saying their names, um, of the institutions, I, you know, we said Zaytuna, and I love Zaytuna, and you know it. It, like I'm, uh, this is not a diss or, or a critique mm-hmm. of Zaytuna at all. I'm just saying, since you said that one, that that's something I have some experience with, and they literally are ten minutes from Masjid Warathine, mm-hmm. where Farad Muhammad taught in that mosque, mm-hmm. and Imam Muhammad bought that mosque with his own money and founded that mosque himself. Imam Muhammad taught in that mosque and named it after him. It's named after him. It's basically named after his community, and Imam Fahim Shuaib was one of the closest people to him and he's not I mean he's not an old man and he's not a young man you know what I mean and he's not being and he just recently um, he just recently was asked to come do you know like there's these extracurricular like Wednesday night sessions you can go to if you want to um, at, at Zaytuna and he was asked to do one of those you know what I mean and which is great but there's that. That's not a. Uh, there's not a. There's no um, acknowledgement that that's a living tradition. That's that's in this area. And if you think about the big conferences or the most you know notable teachers of Islam, they're not talking about Imam Muhammad. Mm-hmm. They're just not. They're not mentioning that at all. They're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, it's really interesting that if you really think about the two means that people come through to Islam, you know, there's like people coming through the nation and then W.D. Muhammad's community on one end, and then for, you know, white people, they're coming through interest in Sufism, Rumi, spiritual poetry a lot of like in the bay area there's a lot of like heterodox movements there's like we're sufi but not muslim there's like a lot you know interesting you know kind of universal sufism and again like that that trajectory also is not like at all integrated like it's it's parallel community like there there's not overlap you know with the kind of like I guess you could say traditional Muslims mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting that there really isn't acknowledgement or uh, any type of love even <clears throat> um, for these the, these are like the two streams through which the vast majority of people that enter Islam come through you know what I mean and yeah it's interesting I mean you got people like I mean you got gatherings that are true like I went up in Napa Valley you got like 400 white 
middle class, like rural white people, all just like, la 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 la, all night long. You know what I mean? Because what the way it's being presented to them is a way that's palpable to their <coughs> reality. And see, that's, and I mean, like on the flip side, I didn't know that existed. Mm -hmm. Like, I literally had no clue that existed. Mm -hmm. Like, when I got out here and I was like, I'm, and I'm like, oh man, mashallah, white Muslim dude. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not something that I, was part of my experience at all. You know what I mean? And then I talked to him, and, and um, yeah, like the idea of like the white Sufis who may or may not be practicing the outward expression of submission, you know, was just like a brand new thing to me that I didn't even know existed. You know, similarly to how, like, you know, when you talk to people, they don't know this other thing existed. But I think, inshallah, I mean, to, to try to bring in like a <coughs> optimistic note is that, you know, I think ultimately this, like some of this, it, f it falls on us and our generation. Right. You know, people that have connections to all this to like fit these pieces together, man. Absolutely. You know, because it's like, there's all these various interesting trajectories into Islam, and some of them are so different that they they, they were living at the same time doing amazing work. Right. Didn't even know about each other. Right, right, Didn't right. even have... And it seems... And it's interesting because, again, like, to be the inheritors, like, my... My... Opening to Islam, like, my exposure to Islam was like, Amir's thing, Rakim and Rumi. Mm -hmm. Like it was hip hop, you know, and it was it was Sufi poetry. Like that was those were the two trajectories and like so I can vibe to a certain extent with the people that are like super Sufi poetry and I can vibe with the people that you huh. know, came through that experience the black Islam experience as well. Um but there's not a lot of overlap, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's not a lot of overlap yet. But um I think that's that's a role that, that I think we're gonna see, man. All the honoring all these all these trajectories, and you're seeing it. I mean, um, who's that one that the the author who wrote about uh, global Muslim youth culture and hip hop? But he talked about how like Malcolm has now being honored in traditional Muslim circles as like a saint. Mm -hmm. And his maqam, his grave, is becoming a place of visitation. Yeah. Which is just fascinating if you think of it in the context of traditional Islam. Like, you go to the the saint's grave, you ask for blessing, the barakah, you know, you pray for them, you want that connection, and all that. And, like, the fact that Malcolm is, is, is beginning to, you know, is to hold that place for a lot of traditional Muslims is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I mean the other thing that, that like some elders have reminded me is that we're very, very new. Mm -hmm. Like Islam is still very new here. And like for Islam in places like India to become what it is, it took a long time. You know what I mean? Even Egypt. I mean the Muslims ruled Egypt for hundreds of years before Egypt became a Muslim country. Yeah, it was like five hundred years before 
Egypt even became 50% Muslim. That's so amazing you know to I mean? me. That's so, and that's like a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, yeah. And so that's one of the things that I see is like, yes, our communicate, our, our uh, generation is bringing these things together mm-hmm. and like infusing them and synthesizing them and like in really cool ways to a degree, mm-hmm. to a degree. Um, but I will say that there's been some failures, mm-hmm. some some detriment, some extremely, you know, um, some some really pivotal th- opportunities that have been missed. Absolutely. And and you know, and it's interesting. I got to hear Imam Zay Shaker sit with um, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Yakubi, and. Uh, you know, they were talking about how America, what is, what's America's openness to Islam. And Imam Zaid basically said to him the, the the truth that there was a time, as you know, as few as twenty years ago, where African American people were wide open to Islam, and they were thirst thirsting for, yearning for Islam, and they were like really coming around and like really, you know, desiring Islam, and that this was the culmination of. I mean, 70 years of work, you know what I'm saying? And um, and the Muslim world gave them little to no support. You know, I mean, w- you know, what could... And you don't want to play the, like, what-if game, but I'm just saying, as a, as a way to gauge, like, what could happen now and what we should be thinking about now, what would have happened if during that time, um, you know, large numbers of, of people were being... Taught like and and given resources, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. What would have happened if, when people came, if these like doctors and engineers and and you know, well, people with a lot of resources and aptitude and stuff came from other places and instead of building their own place, just went to Masjid Waterthane and just brought their whole Muslim self with them. Like, what would have happened if, if you know what I'm saying? Or like Atlanta Masjid of, of Al-Islam. Like, what would have happened if people just showed up there and were like, hey, we're the Muslims. Where do we make wudu? How do we, you know what I mean? Where do we make salat? What, when do we, when's the Quran class? You know what I mean? So to look at those things now and realize that, you know, that by not acknowledging that community, it's, it's not really just a matter of not not acknowledging history. Because now that Imam Muhammad's gone, some they are starting to say his name more. I've heard almost all of these people, now that he's gone, say, well, what Imam Muhammad was doing was amazing. And I didn't hear that when he was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like with a lot of these people, I've grown to really love them. But it took a minute for me to kind of get over that within myself. Mm-hmm. That like they just acted like my leader didn't exist, you know. Um, but so in this, in the, but to, so it's not just a historic thing, but to talk about what's going on right now, and like the fact that these, that the the, the grandchildren of Imam Muhammad are out here right now, and they're but and like you said, they're they're in the Black Lives Matter movement, and they're going to Farrakhan, because nobody, you know what I mean, not nobody, but very few. Of uh, of the the modern Muslim intelligentsia is really speaking to their real lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, and like you say, it's a even just from the effective. If we go back to being mm. effective, yo, it's a strategic mistake. 
You see what I'm saying? Like, it's a strategic mistake. And it's been the great strategic mistake of, you know. And it's white supremacy. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm saying, like, that's mm-hmm. the, the, like, that's the, the, the ultimate thing that you get back to it. It's right. like, why, did why that didn't happen? that happen? Why didn't that happen? Right. If it there was a powerful community of, like, white Muslims that were, like, nationally active and were doing these things and had these mosques, please believe it would have played out way differently right. than if it was some inner-city black Muslims. Mm-hmm. There are some places where that's happening, what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the places that it's really happening is the Atlanta Master of Al-Islam, mm-hmm. which is the Atlanta community in my mom's uh, Atlanta, you know, mosque and Imam Muhammad's community, where the where the Imam that really made made them grow was Imam Pliman El Amin, mm-hmm. who was either Harvard or Princeton, I can't remember, but he was an Ivy League, you know, man who was also a really great community organizer, and his, so was his wife, and she ran the school and he ran the the community, you know, and um. They're, you know, the young people in that community were the ones that went and studied in Damascus. And so they, they were really well versed in Imam Muhammad's language and their community's legacy. Mm-hmm. And then they also got the tradition and tapped into that and understand it in really amazing ways and, like, you know, can lead groups on Hajj and, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, and so when that class of people came back, Imam Pleman El Amin, who had done such an amazing job, did a really unprecedented thing and said, okay, now you lead. And I'm going to be an elder statesman and I'm just your advisor. Mm-hmm. But it, but you've got the training. Let's see you lead now. And so you had Imam Mansour Sabri, who was the imam for you know several years. And now he's actually going to, to work in, in Senegal mm-hmm. to develop... Um, you know, they're, they're actually doing business between Senegal. So, like, to really take it back to where this story starts, you know what I mean? To start building educational opportunities between the two communities, business opportunities between the two. So, he had to resign his post as imam to go work on that. And then Suleiman Hamid, who leads the Hajj groups and also studied in Syria, like, steps in and take that. And then you see people like um, Sheikh Abdullah Ali, who's an African-American fic teacher at Zaytuna, professor, you know what I mean? Um, let go and teach classes there. Mm-hmm. And like people like Sheikh Mohammed Mendez, you know what I mean? Like teaching classes there. And so there are examples, man. You know, there are examples of like these things coming together and really meaningful ways. Yeah, it's going to take, and it's going to take some real reevaluation of tradition and some real reevaluation of our context and real mastery of, of both, man. And inshallah, uh, man, we should uh, let you get some sleep. Alhamdulillah. May Allah bless you. We bring you back to the bay many, many times. Amen. Many, you know, we need like a quarterly visit, man. Alhamdulillah. Shukriya. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.